Amen. Thank you, Doug and team, and good morning, West Park. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided there in front of you, you can turn to 830. Matthew 25. Well, last week, we began a new sermon series entitled Planting for the Gospel. And this week, we will conclude that series, Planting for the Gospel. I'm not sure that two sermons make a series But if you've been around here through the winter and spring, you'll maybe understand that planting for the gospel is bigger than just a sermon series. It really describes a new ministry endeavor that we feel like the Lord is calling us, we believe the Lord is calling us to. And it's this, that by God's grace and with confirmation through the affirmation of the church, we will be planting a church in West, West Knoxville. Just to rehearse where we've been this journey, last year the pastors began to consider, pray about, discuss whether the Lord was calling us to plant a church here in the area. And as we grew in that confirmation last fall, we shared it with the staff with the deacons, with other church leaders um, early this year. Then on March 6, Pastor Sam, Derek, and I uh, rolled out a vision for church planting here on the Sunday morning services. And as a part of that, called West Park to a season of prayer. And in this season of prayer, we've seen over 500 of you sign up for email prayer requests. Hopefully you've been getting those. And then many more of you who are not on that List have told us that you are praying for us. We've also had a church planting information meeting um, during this season of prayer. And that season of prayer will not end, but it will in a way culminate with next week's church vote or hopefully praying that it's an affirmation for the Lord as we walk forward in this. And in this short series, Planting for the Gospel, Derek and I have the opportunity to share with you why it is good and why it is right for us to plant. But as he mentioned, and I want to remind you this morning that planting for the gospel, these two messages are much bigger than church planting. The, the kind of planting that we have in mind is far bigger than planting a church And it is for far more than church planters or pioneer team members, folks who would go with us. The kind of planting we have in mind is the kind of planting that every person, every disciple of Christ, everyone who loves Jesus and cares about his ministry, the ministry of the gospel, this planting is for you. Planting with the gospel in mind. And this morning, I do want to, continue this series, but I want to change the metaphor just a bit. I think you'll see how it overlaps. But instead of leading with planting for the gospel, I want to tweak it just a bit to be investing for the kingdom. And as Derek called our attention in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to being gospel farmers, I want to encourage us through the words of Jesus to be kingdom servants or kingdom investors. 
So we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 25. Hopefully you've turned there. And as you have, I wanna just tell you, you may not feel like you know a lot about the Bible this morning, but chances are you realize that Matthew chapter 25 comes after Matthew chapter 24. And you may say, well, that's not much. But I want you to know this morning that it's something and that it matters. When we come to scripture, it matters what we're looking at, where it fits, what the conversation is. And Matthew chapter 25 fits in this larger conversation that has begun in Matthew chapter 24. We won't turn there, but Matthew chapter 24 finds Jesus at the end of his ministry and he's teaching his disciples, he's preparing them for his departure and life after Jesus, at least his earthly ministry. And as they are on top of the Mount of Olives, they have a view of the temple. And Jesus uses this opportunity, this magnificent view to, to tell them that this magnificent temple will one day be destroyed. In fact, there will not be a stone left stacked upon another stone. And of course, this piques the interest of the disciples. And they immediately want to know, what is this last time? What is this coming destruction? What will be the signs of these things? What will be the, the signals that we should look for for the coming of Jesus? And Jesus tells them some of those signs, but at the end, he says, I want you to know that no one knows except the Father. No one knows the end of these things except the Father. No one knows the timing of these things except the Father. And because you don't know, disciples, Here's the message, be ready, be watchful. He tells them it matters how you wait for the return of Christ. And we know that, it matters how we wait, right? Imagine if you had some home repairs, some home remodeling that needed to take place at your place. So you hire somebody to do everything from painting to a bathroom remodel. And on day one, you come back home to find your handyman set back in your recliner with his hands in a bag of your chips with your TV on. And you look at him puzzled and he explains, I'm waiting for the paint to dry. And you might respond, well, that's good, but there's a whole house to paint. And there's a whole punch list of jobs to do. There's a dozen jobs to choose from. You can wait on the paint to dry, but you can't wait like this, right? It matters how we wait, especially when we have a job to do. And Jesus is gonna tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 25, it matters how you wait. He wants us to be active in our waiting and not passive. Busy waiting is what he has in mind. So let's look at Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14, this parable of the talents. For it, meaning the end of the age or the coming kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. 
so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, did not, you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you, ha- you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into utter darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable of the talents. Now, this story as Jesus tells it is is one of his longer parables, but it is rather straightforward and simple to understand. But there would have been at least a few things in this parable that would have been readily accessible in the minds, some images that would have been readily understood by those first century disciples that might be missed on us here today. So let's walk back through it and make sure we have the story right. Jesus sets up the situation, being that there is a master, this man who is gonna go on a long journey. He has his servants and he's gonna give them talents. So as this man prepares to go on his journey, he calls three servants to him And he divides his property among each three. And he gives them differing amounts according to their ability. He gives one five talents, one two talents, and a third he gives one talent. Now this brings us immediately to a part of the story that again would have made sense to these first century hearers but may be easily misunderstood by us today. And it's this idea of talent. When we read talent here in Matthew chapter 25, we, we should not understand it to be primarily the unique skills or ability that you have. So when you read talent here, don't immediately think playing the piano, hitting a golf ball, juggling, public speaking, whatever it is, don't immediately go there. Because Jesus' disciples would have understood that he didn't mean primarily our skills or abilities, but would have in mind here talents in a financial sense. 
A talent was a measurement of weight, um, 60 pounds of silver. And applied to, to money, one talent would equal about 20 years wages. So a good sum of money here. But the amount is, is really not that important. Um, but we do need to understand how the disciples would have heard this and Jesus' original intention for this word. So he sets up the situation, but then like any good story, Jesus introduces a crisis or a complication. There's a point in Jesus' parables, usually when we're reading along, and we hit a spot and we say, uh-oh, that, that doesn't seem right. And that's the case here. It starts off well enough, right? Verse 16 on, we see that we, we begin with two faithful servants. And the, the actions of these faithful servants, the five talent and two talent servants, is pretty similar. They, they take what they have received, this money, this property that's been entrusted to them, and they immediately do something with it. They invest it, they trade with it, and they receive a similar return. They double the master's money. We come to this third and we realize one of these things is not like the other. The unfaithful servant does nothing with his master's money, but instead goes and buries it. What's the resolution of these things? Well, it resolves when the master comes back to settle his accounts. The text says that after a long time, the master returned. And when the first servants present their increase to the master, what does he say is a commendation for them? Well done, good and faithful servants. He rewards their faithfulness. They've been faithful with little, he'll make them faithful with much. And even more, they're invited into the joy of the master's presence. That are, the disciples would have probably understood that to be these servants were invited right into the table to eat and dine with the master. In contrast with that response, we find the unfaithful servant who presents himself before the master with no increase, with the master's money, but with no increase. And instead of receiving commendation and reward, what does he receive? But condemnation and judgment and punishment. And what does the servant do? He, he tries to excuse his actions or lack of actions by pointing to the master's character or what he understood the master's character to be. He said, master, I know you are a hard man. The idea could be harsh, greedy, exacting, stingy. I know that about you. And since I know that about you, I buried the money. He excuses his inactivity with the master's character or what he thinks he knows about the master. And the judgment, the punishment is devastating. He's, he's not just scolded or demoted He's removed from all other involvement with the master. He's not just a poor servant, he is wicked and slothful. 
And if we're left to wonder, well, how bad is this? He is forever cast out of the master's presence, put in utter darkness and into the place of anguish. Now, this is a fascinating story. Maybe one of the most intriguing parables that Jesus tells us. And it's, it's surprising in some ways. Maybe if you're familiar with the story, it loses that surprise. But I, I believe the disciples would have been very surprised by some of the movement in this and some of the results in this parable. But as fascinating as it is, what is Jesus' point? What does Jesus want us to know? What did he intend for those first disciples? And what does he intend for disciples here today? Well, I think it's this. We've already touched on this, but to come back, it matters how we wait. Jesus tells those disciples and he tells everyone here this morning that there is a way to use your life to spend your life that will result in eternal reward, that will result in the enjoyment of the master's presence forever. But it's also this, there is a way to waste your life. And it's not that hard to do. It takes relatively little effort for us to waste our lives. So what Jesus gives to his disciples and what he gives to us is a real gift saying, don't waste it, spend it, invest it for the kingdom. And he pulls their eyes up. He lifts their eyes from this present reality to kingdom realities. And if we're gonna live our lives, we're gonna invest our lives, if we're not gonna waste our lives, we're gonna have to come to grips and live in light of these kingdom realities. Let me give you seven kingdom realities from this passage. The first kingdom reality is this, God is the master. God is the master. One common thread through all of Jesus' parables is the centrality and the authority of God. God is the central figure. So in Jesus' parables, you will find a master or you will find a father or you will find a nobleman or you will find a king. Whoever that person is, central to the, th- central to the story, that is God. He is central. And you might say, well, that was obvious. Well, maybe the most important point is the most obvious point this morning. If we're gonna live in light of the kingdom, we have to understand that the kingdom has a king. The kingdom has a master. Well, if we understand that God is master, then our place in the story becomes very apparent. God is master and we are the servants. Verse 14 says, he called his servants. In all of Jesus' stories, we find that everyone else is under the authority of the master, under the authority of God. So we're introduced to sons, to subjects, to citizens, to slaves, to servants. And that's us, everybody who's living under the authority of God. He is the king, he is the master, we are the subjects. 
And one of the clear implications is this. If he's the master, he owns everything. And if we are the servants, we own everything that's left. Nothing, right? He owns it all. We own nothing. But there's also something else in this parable that we see. Jesus is showing us the generosity and the goodness of the master. We're not servants toiling under the tyranny of a cruel master. No, this is the master who brings his servants into kingdom endeavors. He gives them real responsibilities, real resources, real opportunity. He makes servants his kingdom partners. God is the master. We are the servants. And God has entrusted us with his resources. God has entrusted us with his resources. You might say, well, what resources? Talents? Jared, I don't have 60 pounds of silver or anything of the like today. And you've told us that it's not about our unique um, skills and abilities. So, So what do we have today? We have the master's resources. Let me give you a a definition of talent as I see it in this text. We are to think of talents as all the resources, time, opportunity, and ability given to us by the Lord. All the resources, time, opportunity, ability, everything that's been given to us by the Lord. And this parable makes it clear that we don't all get the same amount. According to God's goodness and his sovereignty and his knowledge of us, he gives us what he wants us to have according to ability. What we're gonna find in the end, it's not really about how much we have or how much somebody else has. In the end, what is going to matter is what we do with what we've been given. Are we faithful with what we've been given? That brings us to number four. God expects us to do something with his stuff. He expects us to do something with the resources he has given us. You know, again, if we were reading this story for the first time, and before we got to the pronouncement of the master, or before we got to the conclusion, if we were just reading this story for the first time, we might wonder what will his response to these first two servants be? Will he say, how dare you? Who do you think you are taking the master's stuff and using it, risking it, investing it? Or or will he applaud that third servant as the only one who was careful with the master's money. But we're not left to wonder. Nothing is left to our imagination. Jesus makes it very clear that when it comes to kingdom living, risk is right. Risk is right. Investment requires some level of risk. When we invest, we accept a a degree of uncertainty as to how things will work out. Think about our financial investments. If you invest financially, 
you'll be asked to consider the level of risk that you're willing to take with your money. You probably won't be asked if you're willing to take a risk, but how much? Because all investment includes a bit of risk. And while not all risk is right, there's some risk that's just foolish. While not all risk is right, investment and risk for the kingdom of God is right. We are to take everything that God has given us and we are to be all in with it for the purpose of his kingdom, holding nothing back. And that may seem risky, especially as we view risk in this life. We will incur perhaps loss, perhaps injury. Think about this bringing up the gospel to your neighbor involves some risk. Bringing those children into your home involves some risk. Taking some of your finances and investing them in the church, in the kingdom, in the ministry involves some risk. Making that phone call, calling that estranged person for the purpose of building a bridge back to them involves some risk. But we do not risk blindly. We risk on the basis of a good and generous master. We we risk what we risk in this life based upon the promises, the good, eternal promises of God and of scripture. That if we seek his kingdom, he'll take care of the rest. Risk is right. And more than that, the opposite is true. Playing it safe is wicked. I'm not sure I would have said it as strongly as Jesus, but Jesus said it. Playing it safe for the kingdom of God, when it comes to the kingdom of God, is wickedness. One author, J.D. Greer, marvels at the master's pronouncement on this third servant. He says, really, what has he done? Seems to be no stealing, no immorality, no reckless irresponsibility. He didn't blow the master's money on partying or gambling or first-class accommodations in the Caribbean. In fact, he had not spent a single penny on himself. He returned 100% of what he had been given to the master. This is most of us tend to think about wickedness only in terms of the bad things that we do. But, but according to this parable, wicked can apply as much to what we don't do as to what we do. We have been entrusted with the master's resources and he expects that we would invest what he has given us, not bury it, not ignore it, but use it. Not use it on our own selves, but use it and invest it for his kingdom. And in that sense, going all in, risking is right and playing it safe is evil. Just a few more kingdom realities. Number five is, it matters what you think about God. It matters what you think about God. Our theology matters. 
And theology is just whatever you think about God. You are a theologian. You might be a bad one, but you're a theologian. You live your life out with some perspective of God and it determines your actions. Dave Harvey says that theology is a first button issue. Now guys, you'll get this better than the ladies in the room. But guys, what happens if you get the first button wrong? First button wrong on your shirt, everything's wrong, right? He says theology's like that. If you get theology wrong, you get your life wrong. And we see that played out here in the life of the third servant, right? He gets the master wrong and so he gets everything wrong. What does he say in verse 24? Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. He gets it wrong. So he does nothing for the kingdom. His actions only play out what he really believes about the master, who he believes him to be. Whereas he got it wrong, the other servants got it right, didn't they? Whatever they knew, and we're not told everything that they knew, but whatever they knew about the master said he is generous, he is kind, he is rewarding. It caused them to eagerly and immediately invest all that they had for the master and for his purposes. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. Who do you know him to be? Is he a generous God, a loving master? Or do you have something in your mind that paralyzes you with fear? Or maybe it's the opposite. You think little of God. He's disinterested. He's uninvolved. That is a theology. It's wrong and it will keep you from investing from the key, for the kingdom. What do you think about God? And number six, we will give an account of our lives. Most of this parable is about this one point here. And really all of the discourse, all of this sermon, 24 and 25, is about this here. We will give an account of our lives. We will either be welcomed and rewarded or condemned and punished. Every person in this room will give an account of their lives. What kind of account? Well, again, you'll either be commended and rewarded. Think about the goodness and the graciousness of the master to these servants, right? What had they done? Nothing incredible, only what they were expected to do. They did what servants do. They did what servants do with the master's stuff. All they were doing is handling the transaction. And the master says, that is good and that is faithful. You've been faithful with little, I'll make you faithful over much. You will enjoy my presence forever. What goodness and generosity there is in our heavenly master who rewards even his servants. But there's also the possibility of condemnation and judgment. As extravagant as his rewards, so devastating are his punishment and the judgment 
I strongly believe that we, we shouldn't look at this third servant as somebody who wasn't a great Christian, got in to heaven by the skin of their teeth. The words that Jesus uses are, are not only found in this text, but others. And they refer to an internal judgment, an eternal state away from the presence of the master, no longer involved with him, cast out to a place of darkness and anguish. Those are the two possibilities. But I, I wanna just call your attention to, to one last kingdom reality. And it's this, that our actions reveal identity. Because you might've heard that last point and thought, wow, how are we supposed to think about this judgment, re reward and loss? Is Jesus teaching here that I will be accepted on that last day by my own works? Or is Jesus saying that if I don't live for the kingdom, I'm gonna be lost? Are my works gonna be measured? No, not in that way. Jesus and the rest of scripture makes it clear that we are not saved, we're not born again on the basis of our own works, but on, his, on the basis of his own grace and the work of Jesus Christ, that is clear. But the other clear teaching is that our actions reveal our true identity. So Jesus says things like, you will know a tree by its fruit. Is a tree alive or not? Was it bringing forth fruit? What kind of tree is it? We'll check the fruit. What kind of servant is he? What kind of servant is she? Is she a true servant or servant in name only? Jesus says, well, your actions will reveal your true identity. Are you a true servant of the king? Think about this. All three wore the same title as servants. Only two were true servants of the king. Friends, I believe Jesus is teaching, if you have no desire, no interest in the king, in the master or his endeavors, gospel endeavors, then you are not a true servant. Kingdom realities that ought to shape our lives. That's a lot. This one story is packed. And I haven't stretched the parable. I've only brought out, think what's actually there. But there's a lot packed in there. And you say, well, how am I supposed to take all that and live it out as a kingdom servant? What does it look like for me to wait well, to, to be busy at work while I wait, to be faithful? I, I wanna be that person that hears well done. What would that look like? Let me suggest a few ways to apply this parable so that we don't waste our lives. Here's the first thing. Take stock of your life. Take stock of your life. What have you been given? From time to time, Sarah and I will say, well, we really need to look at our budget. Now, we already have a budget, but we need to look at it. What are we saying? We need to figure out what we have and where it's going. Why? So we don't waste it. So we tell it where to go, right? If that's true, if that makes good sense for our finances, how much more for our own lives, our entire lives, that we would take 
stock of them. What do we have and where is it going? These kingdom talents and resources that God has given us. What talents have you been given? Not every kingdom opportunity has your name on it, okay? Maybe that's a relief for some of you. You don't have to sign up, show up, go everywhere. There's a banner of Jesus. You don't have to and you can't. But something has been assigned to you and it's your job to figure out what has your name on it and invest that thing. Write it out if you need to. Your marriage, your family, your job, your career, your finances, your neighborhood, your apartment complex, and on and on it goes. There are things that have your name on it. What are you doing with it? Number two, invest what you have now or invest what you presently have. Even those of us who really have a heart for the kingdom, we have two tendencies that are not helpful. One is that we we tend to focus on what somebody else has and we tend to focus on what we hope to have one day. So, So that first one, we tend to focus on what everybody else has and we think, well, if I had... 25 talents like so-and-so in my ABF, I would fall into kingdom investment, right? I'd wake up every day as a faithful servant, false. Or some of you say, well, at least I'm doing more than so-and-so. Well, guess what? You may be a five-talent servant And they may be a one talent servant, but they're being faithful with their one talent and you're only investing two talents. We can't, this comparison leads to us being paralyzed. We do nothing when we compare ourselves. The other trap we get into is that we tend to focus on what we hope to have, the opportunities, the skills, the resources, the time that we hope to have one day. Well, you know, when I get married, then. Or when these kids get a little older, then, or when I can retire, then. You know, when I get new, that new job, then. You know, when I get that ministry position, then. One pastor calls this the big deal heresy. Now we're always waiting for the big deal. When the big deal comes along, then we'll invest. But the problem with the big deal is that a focus on the big thing someday robs us from the actual thing today. And so we do nothing. The big thing someday will rob you from the actual thing today. So the question is, what do you have in your hand today? Good news, that's all you're responsible for. Invest it. You know, as I've considered this passage, my my mind first came here as we were really considering church planting. And it has stirred my soul for that. But but as I have meditated and wrestled with this passage over the last couple of weeks, what I've come back to is daily faithfulness. God's called my mind not to few months from now, but today, Jared, what opportunities have I given you today? How are you tempted to waste it today? Where can you serve today? 
Number three, live with the end in mind. Are you living with only today in mind? Are you living with only next weekend in mind? Are you living with summer vacation in mind or retirement in mind? Live with the end in mind. When we think about this passage, we ought to think about not now and not me. Not now means that today is not only today. It's an opportunity to invest in the future. And we ought to think, not me. It's not all about me. This is God's stuff. This is his day. This is the day that he's given me to live for him. I saw this week um, an advertisement on the top of the Wall Street Journal. It was for an investment, a retirement plan. And it said, take 1% of your day to plan for 20% of your life. That's good wisdom, right? Hey, it'll only take you a few minutes to make some decisions that are, you're gonna be glad you did when you get to the last 20% of your life. What Jesus says here is, take this little vapor of your life and invest it not in 20%, not in the retirement years, but in all of eternity. This is a gift. He's letting you in on this. Live this little vapor of a life to experience the joy of the master through all eternity. And the last thing is this, be ready. Are you ready to give an account to your master? Each servant gave an account of themselves. They didn't come in groups or families. They gave an account of themselves. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount of Olives in chapter 24, Jesus, one of the illustrations he uses, he says that the last days, you'll know them because they'll be like this. They'll be like the days of Noah. You say, well, how will they be like the days of Noah? They'll be like the days of Noah because in those days, People were just going about their business. What were they doing? They were eating, drinking, getting married. Jesus didn't even focus on the wickedness of that day. He just said they were doing normal stuff. And they were oblivious to the judgment that, were, that was coming. Again, this is a wake up call. Life seems to go on day after day as it always has, but Jesus says there is a day of judgment that is coming and you do not know when it is. Don't be a fool. Do you know the master, the master who is good and gracious and generous? The master who does not only give you his resources and, his, and talents, he gave you his own son so that you might know him so you might be brought in on this kingdom partnership, co-heirs together with Jesus Christ. You can know your master. You can know his joy forever. Do you know him? Would you bow your heads with me? just want to ask you for a moment
Understanding that you, you can't consider, you can't meditate on all these things in just a couple moments. But would you do this in worship of your Savior, in response to His Word and the moving of the Spirit? Would you say in this moment, Lord, I am your servant? Make me faithful. Let me not waste my life. Let me invest it for your kingdom. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here who does not know you, don't know what kind of master you are, never seen Jesus for who he is, Lord, that today that they would come to know the joy that it is, to know that their sins are forgiven, not by their own works, but by the works of Jesus. God, as we leave this place today, and especially as we wake up this morning, would you put it in our minds that you are the master, we are the servants, and let us live this week all in for the kingdom. This is no regret living. God, we are your servants, your sons and daughters. We worship you, our hearts are glad in you. In your son's name, amen.